1: One of the many surprising, unintended consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the the renewed discussion among politicians, as well as in the popular media, of nuclear war. President Putin, of course, cast the first stone, but many others have quickly followed. Would Russia have dared invade Ukraine if the latter had not traded in their stockpiles of weapons in the 90s? Would Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi still be in their palaces if they had nuclear weapons to scare off the Americans and the Europeans? Are the North Koreans simply internalizing those lessons? And why does anybody think that the Iranians have not drawn similar conclusions, especially since their arch enemy Israel crossed that nuclear threshold a long time ago? I'm old enough to remember being told to cower under my desk during drills in case of nuclear war with the Soviet Union as a result of either the Berlin or Cuba crises. I've always wondered how that dust was going to save me from nuclear Armageddon. But that's a situation that generations of Americans and Europeans have not even bothered imagining. But suddenly, not much imagination required. How worried should we be about Russian or Korean or Chinese or prospectively Iranian nukes? Have we suddenly moved from a world of nonproliferation to a world of proliferation? almost 80 years after Nagasaki, would any nation actually dare to use nuclear weapons? My guest today lives with these issues every day. Dr. Tutti Rasto is an expert at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute focused on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation issues. Welcome, Dr. Rasto. Let's start with two cases. Russia invades Ukraine, that doesn't any longer have nuclear weapons. India and Pakistan repeatedly butt heads, including a recent mistaken Indian missile launch, and avoid big conflict. Are nuclear weapons actually stabilizers, and could we be headed into a new era of, as I suggested in the intro, proliferation rather than non-proliferation?
2: I think that's that's a very common common assumption that nuclear weapons bring stability but it's also a dangerous assumption because the fact that we haven't had a nuclear war yet doesn't mean that the risk is not there and I mean nuclear weapons haven't been used for almost 70 years but but that possibility is there as long as we have nuclear weapons in the world and we shouldn't undermine that um, that risk. And um, of course, as long as we have rational leaders, they will avoid using nuclear weapons. But as we see now, the whole world is having doubts about the, the mental state of Putin. And a few years ago, there was another uh, democratically elected president that also created concern that maybe it's it's dangerous to have one person to have so much power over the world's world's largest nuclear stockpiles. And even with smaller stockpiles, you can uh, create a disaster. So, um, and you mentioned Ukraine. I mean, that's been um, one of the arguments that if, if Ukraine wouldn't have given up its nuclear weapons. It wouldn't have been invaded, although that's a bit misleading because they were not really Ukrainian nuclear weapons, but it's a very powerful argument for getting nuclear weapons. I mean, that's the logic based on which North Korea decided to go nuclear, and it's not a coincidence that it decided to do it around the time of the Iraq um, war, around uh, 2003. So the problem really is the i think more more than the capability to build nuclear weapons which more and more countries have um i think the real problem is this that on the demand side that there are countries in a situation who feel like they have no other option than to go, go nuclear
1: one of the obvious questions staying with ukraine for a minute is that president putin has indirectly at least, suggested that there are conditions, circumstances under which Russia would use its nuclear weapons. That has led to a conversation about so-called tactical nuclear weapons. So maybe we should tell people what's the difference between a tactical weapon and a strategic weapon. And then the far more important question, um, although Russia has a strategy apparently of first use, can you imagine any circumstances under which such weapons of mass destruction could actually be used in this Ukraine conflict?
2: I think the reason why Putin has made these threats, which are completely, I mean, unacceptable, I mean, they don't make much sense from, um, I mean, it doesn't make, makes it wouldn't make much sense for for Putin to use nuclear weapons from a military perspective, but making the threats, it's, I mean, it's obviously a way to keep the U S and NATO out of this conflict. So I would, I would view them mainly as threats, but still it's dangerous to, to use this kind of rhetoric. And, and of course, both, both Russia and NATO and the United States have this policy of first use of nuclear weapons. and, and you mentioned the tactical nuclear weapons. Both sides also have tactical nuclear weapons. And that's the rationale for them. I mean, the tactical nuclear weapons are generally... Although the distinction between tactical and strategic is not always so clear, clear-cut. clear But the idea is that tactical nuclear weapons could be used in the battlefield. They are usually have lower yield, shorter range. and And the logic... There is that their their use is more credible. I mean, it's not very credible to threaten a large scale nuclear attack, for example, by Putin against the United States. It's not so. It's not credible because it would be suicidal. But it's it's assumed that making more limited nuclear threats can be more credible because it's it's more like uh, you start with a low level of escalation in the hopes that the other side will back off and but still i would say that the i mean the threshold of using tactical nuclear weapons or a limited nuclear strike it's still very high because the leaders at least should understand the risks of escalation because instead of backing off the other side might just respond with a limited strike of its own and that might then go on and escalate into an all-out nuclear war in the worst case, and and it should be emphasized that these are weapons of mass destruction. So, so it's misleading actually to even talk about the limited nuclear strike. But these concepts were developed during the Cold War to to kind of uh, limit nuclear war. That if it would start, then at least at at the beginning it would be limited. But but this idea of uh, this threat threat of escalation is always there. So I don't think if any rational leader would even um, resort to a limited use of nuclear weapons. But people are not always acting rationally, so we don't have guarantees over that.
1: Uh, let's segue to the big negotiation that's been going on now for some time, which is between Iran uh, and the West over uh, the so-called Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, which was negotiated a number of years ago and then uh, more or less blown up by Donald Trump and an effort to put it back together now. Um, that negotiation over Iran's potential acquisition of nuclear weapons is even more cogent in the context of the Ukrainian war. It, it all becomes much more real. Uh, First, a technical question and then a general question. The technical question is, we're in early April. How close is Iran to having nuclear weapons capabilities? And second, do you think that it's a question merely of time? Sooner or later, will Iran, in fact, uh, obtain that capability?
2: It's um, that speculation about the Iranian capability of of um, building a nuclear weapon. I mean, in principle, Iran could could produce a nuclear weapon already or enough material for a nuclear bomb. But then it's another question how long it would take to turn this into a, a nuclear warhead. I, I won't provide an estimate of my own. I mean, there are plenty of estimates out there, but... From my point of view, the main thing is that even though Iran has the capability it, it hasn't it doesn't seem to have the will to do that I mean in my view Iran would have already developed a nuclear weapon a long time ago if it wanted to I mean we know that it it had has explored that option and and it appears that it gave up gave up that option in um, in two thousand, around two thousand and three, uh, but still, it's it's um, wanted to continue with uranium enrichment, which makes it uh, a so-called thres- threshold state. But I think the focus should be on preventing Iran to from crossing the threshold. The threshold and and the JCPOA has been a or was a good good tool for for doing that. We don't know if if that can be restored, but still there are ways to not give Iran reasons to cross the threshold. And I think the worst thing to do would be uh, military threats against Iran, because that's what tends to push countries to to go nuclear.
1: I've heard you make the case elsewhere that there are powerful forces inside Iran that don't want to go nuclear. Uh, Parts of the elite, big chunks of the middle class. Uh, clearly important political actors, and there are obviously parts that want to go nuclear. Perhaps the Revolutionary Guard, uh, some parts of the leadership, etc. Uh, we tend in the West not to think about politics terribly clearly in a country like Iran, but it does seem like there's a robust political process underway, which, as you just said, uh, has prevented the Iranians, from, from actually completing the process. Is, is, that, is that a fair assessment?
2: I would say it's, I mean, the majority, the powerful ma- ma- majority is against nuclear weapons in Iran. At the moment, I mean, we have seen, there have been voices that have um, that have argued for, for Iran getting a nuclear deterrent, but the supreme leader, it should be noted that he has... Despite all the uh, hostile rhetoric against the West or critical rhetoric against the West, um, he has been. I mean, he gave a chance for the JCPOA. I mean, he it would the JCPOA wouldn't wouldn't have been possible without the endorsement of the the supreme leader and the and the conservative elites. And I think it's not. Um, yeah, maybe in that other conversation that you might have heard, I also, I mean, I was arguing for reasons why Iran doesn't necessarily benefit from having a nuclear weapon. And one reason is that it already has quite a powerful conventional deterrent. And nuclear weapons wouldn't necessarily add to that. It might actually undermine the conventional deterrent, which is based on conventional missiles and this more asymmetric deterrent of um which is based on alliances with non-state actors in the region so i guess yeah my my argument was that i mean if iran would go nuclear its conventional deterrent would actually be less credible because once once you have nuclear weapons you they're they are not really usable, and you become very careful about even using conventional missiles. I would say because there is a danger of misinterpretation, especially in conflict.
1: Well, and the example of that is India and Pakistan, uh, who have nuclear deterrence uh, and who certainly have a lot of animosity. But every time it's their their tension seems to out to get out of control. They clearly step back and say, we can't do this because the risk. So deterrence, it, it, it works in that, in that sense.
2: Yeah, the problem is that it, we have also examples when, of cases when deterrence didn't work, because also the adversaries of nuclear, nuclear armed states, they know that the threshold of using nuclear weapons is high. So they, they might uh, calculate that uh, they might still attack because they don't think it's likely that the country will actually respond with with using nuclear weapons. I mean, one example of one example is Iraq sending missiles to Israel in the early '90s, and and there are there are other examples. And and it's true that uh, the existence of nuclear weapons makes um, India and Pakistan, for example, careful, but it doesn't eliminate the risk that one of them actually crosses the nuclear threshold and especially the risk of miscalculation because when, when there's a conflict, they might, they might misinterpret the other side's missile, for example, as being nuclear armed when it's not and, and it could be a accidental nuclear war.
0: Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be. If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliassin Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org.
1: Let's go back for a minute to Iran. If Iran somehow does make the decision, which it thus far has not made, as you pointed out, uh, to Obtain nuclear weapons? Would you would you think that runs the risk of a of neighboring states in the Middle East uh, also pursuing nuclear weapons? Is there danger of of an arms race, a nuclear arms race in in the Persian Gulf?
2: Yes, I mean Saudi Arabia has very clearly stated that it will um, it will get whatever Iran has. It's of course it's not that easy just to just to develop nuclear weapons out of nowhere They're, they don't have a very uh, advanced nuclear program yet but I mean there's been a lot of discussion that they could just buy nuclear weapons.
1: Is that possible?
2: I guess it's a it's a risk but but again I would highlight the, the demand side of the problem. I think if they really want to get a nuclear weapon they they, they might get it one way or another they might develop their own, which is in their plans to develop their civilian nuclear infrastructure, which and and uh, engage in the same kind of hedging as Iran, and so there is a risk. Although, of course, it's not um, immediate or automatic, but but there is a tendency for for if one at ad- one party of a conflict or an ad- adversary gets nuclear weapons, then then the other one can reciprocate. But Middle East is a special case in that sense that Israel has had nuclear weapons for a long time and still others haven't haven't developed their own, although, although Iraq, for example, tried.
1: Let me just ask a quick question then. Israel has nuclear weapons. We now have some kind of rapprochement between Israel and Gulf Arabs. The Saudis aren't yet on board, uh, but the Emiratis are and others are. Uh, can you imagine a world where it is the Israeli nuclear umbrella that comes to play in terms of protecting uh, the Gulf Arabs from in a, a nuclear Iran, if that were the case?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess it would be a better option than than Arab countries getting their own nuclear weapons, But but I hope it doesn't go that far. And I think if... Yeah, I hope we Iran doesn't, doesn't get enough <laughs> or more reasons to, to go nuclear. But yeah, if it does, maybe that would also then, in addition to creating an in- intensive for further proliferation, maybe it would create an incentive also for Israel to further develop its arsenal. So there's always that risk, but yeah, hopefully... Hopefully it doesn't go there and hopefully the JCPOA can be restored or at least bigger crisis can be avoided, even though it wouldn't work out. I mean, it doesn't look so good for the JCPOA at the moment, unfortunately.
1: Let's go to the larger context, because the larger context of arms control, even of disarmament discussions, it wasn't that long ago. Um, that the Russians and the Americans actually talked about disarmament. Uh, That has passed uh, way in the rearview mirror at this point. Quite the opposite right now. We have the Ukraine war poisoning relations between NATO and Russia, between the U.S. and Russia. Can you imagine a world where we restart serious Discussions between the big nuclear powers, in particular the U.S. and Russia, but also the U.S. and China, over um, a, a serious effort to control nuclear weapons.
2: Yes, I hope that process will be um, resumed. Unfortunately, after after everything that has happened in Ukraine, it's hard to imagine that happening between Putin or any American president. And, I mean, of course, there are other countries in the world who possess nuclear weapons, but it's really the responsibilities on the two largest nuclear weapon states, the United States and Russia, to further cut their arsenals. And only then, when they get closer to the, as the Chinese often stress, when they get closer to their numbers uh, of nuclear stockpiles, then then China could come join the arms control process as well. So unfortunately, in the near future, it's hard to see the the arms control process being resumed, which was by the way deadlocked already for over a decade before this. So Ukraine is is not the only problem there. But but there was some hope last year, for example, when Biden took over and and they had um Russia and the United States started this new process of strategic stability talks. they actually um, talked about prospects for uh, restarting the arms control negotiations but and they even as you remember they there was this statement in January by the p five uh, the five nuclear nuclear armed members of the npt the non- proliferation treaty that a nuclear, I'm repeating the statement by Reagan and Gorbachev and so on. So uh, that nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. I mean, that seemed to build some hope, but unfortunately, yeah, like I said, in the near future, it's hard to see this process going on. But on the other hand, in the longer term, I think what the Ukraine crisis has really stressed again or highlighted the nuclear danger in a way that we haven't seen since the days of the Cold War. And so in the longer term, I think it could create more momentum and add urgency to nuclear disarmament, because there is no really other cure for the nuclear danger except reducing nuclear weapons. Because I mean, for for some time, we have assumed that Okay, we knew that there are nuclear, too many nuclear weapons in the world, enough to destroy the world. But we assumed that nuclear weapon states are responsible, as they always like to highlight. But we have seen now, or I mean, it's kind of obvious that that um, we, we can't rely just on the judgment of a few leaders. Uh, so awareness of that danger might actually pave the way for future arms control.
1: At the same time, it's not just a question of our ability to destroy the world many, many times over. Uh, that That's old news. The new news is that there's, as you know better than I, dramatic new innovations in the space. Um, an American admiral recently testified to Congress, to the United States Congress, about the chinese supersonic missile which apparently has um people all excited in in a, in a in a scared sense it's a dramatic supposedly it's a dramatic improvement in um in weaponry uh whether it's nuclear tipped or not nuclear tipped does in 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 one sense makes it even worse but isn't the problem not just that we've run out of momentum on the negotiations made worse by the atrocities in Ukraine, for sure. But also that at the same time, the big powers continue to innovate, looking for new weapons, bigger weapons, faster weapons. Supersonic missiles sound scary to, sounds like something out of a Marvel comic book strip. actually, But it's, (laughs) it's unfortunately real. You're the expert. How do you get people to say enough is enough?
2: Actually, I I wanted to say about hypersonic weapons. The it actually has-
1: oh, the supersonic, hypersonic. Yes, I I told you you were the expert. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, the, I mean the that's that relates to one of the deeper, you could say deeper strategic, or structural problems, um, because of which arms control hasn't has been deadlocked for so long, because apart from the bad, um, I mean, also after the first Ukrainian invasion, that created a very bad co- political context for arms control. That's important. But there are also strategic problems that would be problems, even though Russia and the United States would be in very good terms with each other. And actually, they you could see them already during the New START negotiations. I mean, that last treaty that we had between the United States and Russia to reduce their nuclear weapons. Um, because the Russian position already then was that they they were reluctant to discuss new reductions on nuclear weapons without also considering some strategic uh, non-nuclear system, systems that, in their view, had an impact on nuclear deterrence. And what I'm referring to here is missile defense, which was regulated until 2002 by the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which was uh, negotiated during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union to control um, arms race, not only um, in nuclear weapons, but but also in the strategic offensive systems. So actually, when the arms control process between the... um, cold war superpowers started it wasn't it was it was uh, in parallel they negotiated not with the in parallel with the first nuclear arms control agreement they negotiated a treaty to regulate missile defenses and and that was based on the logic that okay now i need to explain missile defense it's a system that seeks to eliminate or intercept an adversary missile incoming missile which is already launched um, like when it's still flying. So, and which is a great idea in principle, but the problem is that it created another level of arms race because then both sides sides wanted to make sure that they can defeat the other side's missile defenses because missile defense can actually make nuclear deterrence uh, ineffective if it actually works. So and and the easiest ways it to to um, defeat a missile defense system is just to to outnumber the interceptor defensive interceptor missiles with offensive nuclear missiles. So it actually creates an in- incentive to build larger nuclear stockpiles. Okay, then during the Bush administration, the United States decided to uh, withdraw from the ABM treaty because they felt that they needed protection against so-called rogue states, Iran and North Korea, that might develop intercontinental missiles armed, armed with nuclear warheads. But Russia and China have been concerned that the same system could undermine their nuclear deterrence. And if you saw Putin's um, speech in 2018, when he revealed the new new Russian nuclear weapons, almost all of them were justified on the in terms of the need to defend against US or to evade US missile defenses. So hypersonic weapons um, is considered an effective way to evade missile defenses because it has a different kind of trajectory than Mm -hmm. ballistic missiles. It's not not necessarily faster. I mean, ballistic missiles are also fast, but it's it's harder to shoot down. So, and this is a problem in the sense, I mean, it's, it can create, it's, it's fast. It's, it also creates um, maybe problems, misperception problems. It can undermine crisis stability, but on the other hand, as far as, as far as hypersonic weapons make nuclear armed States like China and Russia, which are now, which have been concerned about the effectiveness of their nuclear deterrence in the face of US, U.S. missile defenses. As far as hypersonic weapons make them more confident about their nuclear deterrence, then they, in principle, they wouldn't mean need so many mis- uh, nucle- offensive nuclear weapons. So long story short, nuclear modernization is a problem for disarmament because it's it ca- can create new kinds of arms comp- uh, armaments dynamics. One country develops hypersonic missiles and then the other one the adversary feels like it also needs the same kinds of weapons and when you invest in nuclear modernization and these expensive systems you're more reluctant to give them up but it's also a double edged sword in the sense that as long as those new systems make you um make the second strike nuclear forces more survivable like hypersonic weapons are thought to do, then maybe it it can also be a positive for nuclear ar- arm disarmament. I don't want to um like advertise hypersonic weapons as, as something good, but but like nuclear submarines, it has that aspect to it because nuclear submarines are also thought to be highly survivable. Su- survivable and for example many um proposals for minimal nuclear deterrence, not going straight to disarmament, but minimizing the US arsenal in the early 1990s, for example, or around the negotiation of the New START treaty when there were ambitious arms control proposals. Many of them were based on reducing US nuclear arsenal by um, focusing on on the sea-based deterrence. Sea-based deterrence, which is most survivable, and some also argued that Russia should invest in survivable nuclear delivery systems so as to be able to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. So, yeah, that's a long explanation, but <laughs> it's a very complex issue. So hypersonic weapons, they can be destabilizing in some ways, but maybe stabilizing in other
1: ways. Let me end with a personal question uh, you live with this stuff every day how do you go to sleep at night
2: i have to say that since russia invaded ukraine it's it's for the first time that it's hard to keep keep these things out of my mind during the yeah when i go to sleep it's scary but on the other hand i still think that the threshold of using nuclear weapons is very high but but the risk is It's there, it's always been there, and this crisis shows, makes us understand it better. So I hope nuclear weapons won't be used, but there's no guarantee,
1: of course. Tudor Rasto, thank you very much for this conversation. I'm glad we ended on at least a slightly hopeful note. Um, But the real point is that we live, we may or may not live in interesting times, we certainly live in dangerous times.
0: Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.